And so this is that we're going to read. I wonder if you can spot what kind of end this is as we read it. So the context, for those of you that haven't been journeying with us through this series on John, is that uh, Jesus uh, has been um, attracting the attention of the religious elite. Rome had occupied Israel. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious power base and the temple and all of the religion was allowed to operate by the Romans because it kept the people in order. Because they knew that if they tried to take their religion and their temple away, it would just cause more problems. And so the Romans allowed them to keep the temple and their religion and the Pharisees and the Sadducees operated the system. And so as long as that status quo, that accommodation between Rome and the Jewish people was in place, there was a fragile detente peace between them. But of course, along comes Jesus with his massive popular following, performing signs and miracles and doing incredible things. And the people were deserting the Pharisees and following Jesus. Their power base was slipping through their fingers. And their fears about some popular revolutionary were growing. If this Jesus was yet another wannabe Messiah, another rabble-rouser who was going to stir things up with the Romans, it had happened before, it could happen again, then everything could be lost. And so the decision was reached quietly to get rid of Jesus because he was destabilizing all of their power bases. Of course, things reached a climax when Jesus went to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, three siblings who he knew and loved. He often stayed in their home when he was in the south near Jerusalem. That was his base. And Lazarus had died, And Jesus knew that he was dying, but he held off going. And four days after Lazarus was in the tomb, when lots of people from the fringes of Jerusalem, not just the little village of Bethany, not just the local community, but people from the big city two miles along the road had come to mourn with Martha and Mary. And so there was this big crowd. And at the the kind of high point of a week's worth of official mourning, which was what was prescribed in the Jewish faith, Jesus performed this resurrection miracle in front of everybody massive moment. Somebody who in a Middle Eastern climate where, as we said weeks ago, a body can decompose in seven days from death to skeleton, four days in, advanced decay, and here comes Lazarus out of the tomb. What a miracle. Incredible. Everyone got to hear about it. We read about a dinner that was given a little later on where Lazarus was there and lots of people had come just to Ogle Lazarus. This guy had a pulse. This dead man had a pulse. Was lying right next to Jesus. And so the next thing that happens is that Jesus comes into Jerusalem. It's the beginning of the Passover week. Lots of pilgrims coming from the Jewish people were spread out. And there were three festivals in the year, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, that the Jews would come to Jerusalem for. Big crowds. Lots of people there. Lots of expectation about Jesus. If he could raise a dead man, then he could take on the Romans, right? And so Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling an ancient prophecy that the Messiah would come in on a donkey. And he came in with crowds, surrounding him with adulation, 
quoting a verse from Psalm 118 that said, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But they added in another bit that wasn't in the psalm that said, blessed is the king of Israel. That's fighting talk. And so everybody was roused and stirred. Expectation was heavy in the air. It was a little bit like a Brexit moment. An opportunity to break free of Rome and have our nation back. That's how the rhetoric went. And so the conspiracy around Jesus, the expectation of who he was, is this our Messiah going to give Israel back into our hands? And of course, Jesus had a very different agenda. Coming into Jerusalem to fulfill God's word. Coming into Jerusalem to usher in the kingdom of God. Coming into Jerusalem to take on, not the Romans, but the powers and principalities. To take on the curse on you and me that is sin and judgment and death and condemnation. Jesus had a very different kingdom in view when he rode into Jerusalem. And he predicted that he would die And there was a climate of expectation. There were some Greek foreigners came and said, we want to see Jesus. This thing was ready to blow internationally. And so we're going to read from verse 34, which is just on the tail end of that entry into Jerusalem where the people were... uh, hoping and longing that Jesus was this Messiah, this liberator, this uh, savior and rescuer, not in a spiritual sense, in the sense that we understand, but in a nationalistic sense. Verse 34 then, the crowd spoke up, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? In their heads, they were thinking, "Is, is this someone else? other than the Messiah? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he'd finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. 
If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. For I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Amen. I asked you earlier on to talk about last-minute moments. Last-minute, perhaps, panics or crises in some cases, or just last-minute moments. When I went to my first charge, which was out in Gearloch Head, by the time I filled in an application, they were just on the cusp, I think, of they were, had three other people lined up that they were hearing. And when I phoned up the interim moderator to ask if I could apply, he said, well, you have to be quick he said, because we've got three other people lined up to be heard. And so, uh, it was a kind of last-minute thing, uh, and a door opened, and and we were there for 24 years. (laughs) Sometimes uh, significant things can happen just at the last moment. We often, particularly the planners amongst us, want to know well in advance what God is going to do, right? We would like to have, ideally, you know, whether God is involved or not, we would like to have a life plan. I would like to know. I think it's probably the appeal of the Face app, Uh, and I'm sure lots of you have had fun aging yourselves on the Face app in the last month or so. I certainly have. Well, you might be sitting there thinking, well, you don't need it, mate. (laughs) But there's always a bit to go. Um, We want to know what the future holds. I mean, if we could face up our lives, never mind our faces, and know with certainty that this is what was going to happen, we would all do it, right? It's why people go to fortune tellers. We want to know what's coming. We want to know what the future holds. And, uh, but sometimes we don't know. Well, often, usually, in fact, we don't really know what the future holds. We can have a best guess, and then there is the reality that sometimes gets us from left field. And we weren't looking for that at all, and something just came completely out of left field, and it might be a good thing or it might be an awful thing. And we find ourselves caught with something we didn't see coming. This is a last-minute moment for the people of Israel. They didn't know it was. They didn't see it as such. They thought they knew what was going to happen. They thought they knew that Jesus was going to take on Rome and all their concerns and offense about being occupied and under the thumb of a foreign Gentile power would be brought to an end. But actually, this was a last moment, certainly in terms of the way John tells the story in his gospel, because this is the end of chapter 12. And I don't know how well you know John's gospel, but chapter 13, we will get to Jesus washing his disciples' feet in the intimacy of the Passover meal, where with the twelve disciples and others he gathered, and it was a private inner moment. And chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 all belong to that gathering. There's a lot of teaching that isn't included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But there's this big, long teaching about Jesus saying, I'm going away. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit will do. Fear not, I will be with you, I'll be in you. 
I haven't abandoned you or left you. And then finally in chapter 17, we have that uh, beautiful prayer where Jesus prays for his disciples and he prays for all of us, those who believe through their witness. And then it's chapter 18. And in chapter 18, Jesus goes off out to the Garden of Gethsemane and then he's arrested. And from then on, it's, it's trial, it's execution, it's crucifixion and death and burial. And that takes us up to chapter 19. And then chapters 20 and 21 are resurrection. This is the point where Jesus' public ministry, where his offer to the crowds, his invitation to believe and to recognize that light has come amongst them, this is, this is the last moment in the way John tells it. Because from here on in, in fact, it says that in verse 36, when he'd finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Last moment. You know, there are moments in our lives, and sometimes only with hindsight, we recognize that that was a significant moment. I think I've told the story here before, but I remember graduating and just going to, in those days before you got your results online, you had to go and read them off a board and going and finding out what our degree results were. And me and all the folks I'd studied and lived with for four years went and saw our degree results. And we went and had lunch and hung out. And we never paid any attention to the fact that that was it. Because then people started going away. You had to move out of flats, pack up your stuff, uh, go and get summer jobs, go back home, because you were only going to come back for one day at graduation. And we thought, oh, we'll see you at graduation. Well, no. You see, you don't hang out with your pals at graduation. You hang out with your mom and dad, or your brother, or your sister. And you do, like, fancy photographs, and you swan about in your gown, and you go and have a nice lunch somewhere. And you briefly see people in the interaction, but it's not the same as hanging out with your pals when you're at uni together. Just you and them doing what you always did. And there was the moment, the moment round the board, commiserating and congratulating over results. Here was a moment where Jesus warned them. And the crowd's saying, well, we've, we've heard about the Messiah, and, and you're talking about this Son of Man. Being, we don't understand what you're talking about. And Jesus warned them and said, look, you're going to have the light a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. You know, there's an awful lot of darkness around in our world. There are an awful lot of people walking around in darkness, kidding on that they know what they're doing and that we know where we're going and we know where the, this is going to lead and what the outcomes are, but really, we haven't a clue. We haven't a clue. I mean, I'm not just talking about Brexit, but I could be. But there's an awful lot of walking around in the darkness and trying to do the best thing we think we could do with what we think we know. And every generation, it's not unique to us, although we have to cope with a global scale in a way other people don't or haven't in the past, but every generation and age has had to cope with the reality of the darkness of the times in which they lived. I mean, the medieval period was sometimes referred, is still sometimes referred to as the Dark Ages. You know, spirituality and, and Christian faith was at a pretty low ebb. There was a lot of superstition and, and so on. Life was, was tough in those ages. But was there ever a time when people weren't just winging it, actually, even the planners? 
because you can't plan for what you can't know or control. And Jesus warned them, saying, look, walk in the light, because the darkness is coming, or before the darkness overtakes you. And, and, you know, it's very easy for us in life to get consumed by that which Jesus would call the darkness. You know, we're not talking about some kind of Star Wars dark side thing here. We're just talking about the darkness of the fact that you can consume or allow your life to be consumed by things that are passing away. Things that seem important and in terms of your lifespan and maybe the studies that you're doing or the work you're involved in, it is important and significant in human terms. But relatively speaking, Jesus says that stuff's darkness. The things that people throw their lives at and invest themselves in and go after and think this is going to fix it. Darkness. And the world may well grow darker. Happy news the other night when they discovered something even more uh, toxic to the environment than just plain old CO2. What was it? Sulfur hexafluoride. Oh, I think. S6F. Something which every power station uses uh, as, a, as an insulator and apparently which releases far more, uh, far more damaging gases in the environment than CO2 does. Yay! Just when we thought climate change couldn't get any worse. Or who knows which way the Brexit thing will pan out. Because I can't really see a happy outcome here. I can't really see a happy outcome now, either way, whichever way we go. Because if Brexit does go ahead, and what, depending on what the deal is or isn't and so on, if it ends up with food shortages and medicine shortages and, and all sorts of consequences that people hadn't thought of before, then there will be civil unrest. <laughs> and if Brexit doesn't go ahead, there will be riots on the street for other reasons, because it didn't go ahead. Now, I'm not trying to do a kind of, you know, uh, a kind of we're all doomed scenario. We're just living with our share of darkness, as every generation before has done. But you see, what has sustained the world through 2,000 years of relentless darkness and people trying to fix it and make it better is the light of Christ. It is the strong golden shaft of light and life which miraculously in different countries and cultures and languages and people groups has given light and hope and transformation, has allowed people to know joy and purpose, to know that they are part of a bigger thing that is not fading or passing away because it is of God, sealed by the death and resurrection of Jesus empowered by the ongoing life of the Holy Spirit until Jesus come again. And Jesus said, while you have the light, walk in the light. And whether the future looks grim or worrying to you, or maybe it's full of all sorts of other exciting things that come up, that's great and fantastic. But while you have the light, seize the light and walk in that. Because everything else is passing away that you may become 
children of light. It was Jesus' last words to the people. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. And that appeal goes out to this very day and minute. You know, this is the day of salvation. This is the day when God calls you afresh, or for the first time, I don't know. I don't know every single person here in detail. We're either for the first time or in a new way. He's saying, look, walk in the light. Don't fear the darkness, even though it may seem all-pervasive and the news uh, doesn't necessarily encourage you. Know that the kingdom of God trumps and triumphs or triumphs over Trump, anyway. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, however, they would not believe in him. There's none so blind, I think it was Rabbi Burns that said, as those who can't see. Maybe it wasn't him. It doesn't matter. It's a proverb and a truth. There's none so blind as those who can't see. And even some of the people that had witnessed Lazarus being raised from the dead could not see beyond their immediate need. Their immediate need of a a hero, of a Messiah that would deal with the Roman problem. Of someone who would put food on the table because we heard he took bread and fish and fed a crowd of 5,000 or who would just heal the sick in my family because I know that he heals sick people. And sometimes that immediacy of my need blinds us to who Jesus is. And so the people we discover, none despite they had, despite having seen and witnessed the miracles such as the raising of Lazarus from the dead, people still did not believe in him. They wanted things from him, but they didn't believe in who he was. Those are not the same thing. And beware, because we can do it too. We can want things from him, but not be willing to believe in him to the extent that we will put our whole lives in his hands. There's lots and lots of people in... um, family rooms and intensive care units, in labor suites, in hospital situations, in crisis places all around the world, will be praying because, and understandably, and please don't hear any reproach, they want a miracle. They need help. But I know over 30 years of ministry the number of times that people will need God passionately in their crisis, and when their crisis is resolved, will disappear like mist and give God never a backward glance. And so Jesus' call to the people was to believe in who He was, whether or not they got the thing they wanted or hoped for. And he calls you, too, to that risk. That he's not a genie in a bottle to grant your every wish, but he calls for you to lay down your life and give him your allegiance in the same way that he, in this narrative in John, is on his way to lay down his life for you. 
but there was a blindness and a hardening in hearts. You know, sometimes there's a window for people, and if they don't take it, it closes. Now, I'm not saying that to put the frighteners on you, but it's a reality I've observed over these years. But you know, there is a moment where there's a conviction and a reality about God's opportunity for you, a moment of uh, salvation, a moment where God was calling your name, and where perhaps you knew He was. And it's not that there aren't other chances or might not be other chances down the road, but who knows? First time I ever encountered death was when my pal Gordon that I worked alongside in a bar in Edinburgh when I was doing a student job got knifed on New Year's Day in Easter Road in Edinburgh and died age 21. So who knows? Because stuff like that still happens tragically all too often. And I'd never been to a funeral before I went to Gordon's, and it seemed to me quite wrong to be for a 21-year-old to be my first ever funeral. So who knows? Because there are windows when God opens for us, and yet the people here were so focused on having their political needs or their ambitions or their hopes met that they didn't see who Jesus really was and what He was doing. Some did, of course, but they just kept shtum about it. The Pharisees, were told, had amongst their ranks some of the leaders who believed in Him, but they wouldn't acknowledge their faith for fear they'd be put out of the synagogue. I was at City of Glasgow College CU the other day. It was really great. A little group of new students, some students carrying on from last year, and some new students. And we ended up having a chat. Um, Actually, we had to end up having a chat about their equality and diversity module that every student has to, has to complete. And there was a, 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 a section on the, the, the equality and diversity module where a, a scenario was given that, let's call him Gary. Gary is a, is a Christian and uh, has put posters up on a notice board, on the CU notice board, about an event that is coming up. Gary often carries his Bible and uh, you know, when he can, tries to talk to other people about his faith. Gary comes in one day and discovers that the posters have been ripped up off his notice board and rolled into a ball and thrown on the floor by some other students. Question, who is at fault here? And so one of the people who was brought the issue said, well, I ticked the people who took the posters off the wall. And the answer came back in this online module, Partial correct, partially correct, both are wrong. Gary should not have been trying to win other people to his faith. Now, I happen to know that there are certain uh, PC stances, shall we call them, that are promoted quite aggressively all over the colleges. <laughs> and I don't imagine if I was to go and rip some posters off the wall that they would necessarily... Uh, that that would necessarily meet with the same answer. <laughs> you see, there are some agendas that it's okay to promote nowadays. It's quite interesting because actually the underlying assumption, when I was thinking about this, the underlying assumption is that Christianity is in the majority and Christianity should not therefore be compelling or forcing people to, to comply with its worldview. But I actually kind of want to say to the EDNI department, and I might do this, Actually, I think you'll find Christianity is now in the minority and that we're actually one of the minorities that you should be defending <laughs> because 80% of persecution in the world against religious groups is against Christians. 
Anyway, the point was that in the group of the Pharisees, to say that you believed that Jesus was the Messiah of God was toxic stuff. I mean, you know, it could get you losing the whip. It could get you thrown out of the party. But then I suppose I asked myself what the equivalent challenge for me is, or maybe you ask yourself what the equivalent challenge for you is. If you find yourself in a group of people who see it a different way, who don't know uh, Jesus, because we ended up having a little chat in the CU, and one girl who goes to the Salvation Army, out, um, just in a Salvation Army outside Glasgow, she said she was in a class and some of the other students said, anyone who believes in God's stupid. And she didn't quite know. Uh, in fact, I think she did. I think she had the courage to say, eh, excuse me, <laughs> excuse me, I believe in God. Oh, oh, sorry. Oh, I didn't mean to offend you. But if she hadn't been there to bring that corrective, that assumption would have been left hanging in the air that anyone who believes in God is stupid. And because this girl had the courage to stand up for Jesus in an environment that was hostile, that is by default hostile probably to Christianity, she actually brought a corrective and another perspective. It's kind of why if you can make that confident Christianity course, then do it. And if you missed the Perth one, there's one, as I say, coming around in Glasgow. And if you can't go to either, well, I'm, I've been looking at the Solas website. I know I've talked about this, but I'm really impressed with what they've got on there. It's solas-cpc, stands for Center for Public Christianity.org, solas-cpc.org. Have a look on there, because there are loads of really good little three-minute, what do I say to someone? How can a good God allow suffering? You know, are atheists bad people? All sorts of questions that might come up in conversation. And if you're studying, then these questions sooner or later, if you're going to raise your head above the parapet like Sophie did in the CU, then you might need some tools in the box to help you have the answer. So you might want to have a little look and say, how can I be armed and equipped so that I don't just go and feel I've let Jesus down? There were some Pharisees who kept their heads down and were told it's because they loved human praise more than praise from God. Well, who doesn't love human praise? We all love human praise. The challenge, of course, is in the balance, whether we're going to allow human praise and our love for that to eclipse our testimony and our witness in places where it's maybe a little tough to own up that you're a card-carrying believer, if you are, as I believe most of you are. And so Jesus challenged them and then cried out, saying, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but the one who sent me. Because Jesus' agenda was not to promote himself. And your agenda in that situation or any other situation where you're called on to be a stand up and be counted for Jesus in a day that thinks that's all a joke, anyone who does that, just remember that actually if people hate you, it's not about you. If people laugh at you, it's not about you. If people mock what you believe, it's not about you. 
And Jesus came and said, I have just come to deliver what I was told to say. But actually how people react and respond, that is between them and my Father. And we are sent as envoys and ambassadors out into the world to carry our testimony with humble pride, if you can have such a thing. To carry our testimony unashamedly. To ask God to allow us to be as joyful and gracious, as loving and just, as fun and pure and holy as we might be, as fruitful so that in the places that He's put us, and that might be your brand new flat or your uh, halls of residence, that might be a course of first years where you're all finding your way, that might be back in uh, with a different group this year in accommodation, it might be in your community or neighborhood or places where you hang out. You're only sent to bear witness to Jesus. And so Jesus said, if anyone hears my words but doesn't keep them, I'm not judging that person. It's not for me to judge. Judgment belongs with the Father. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus is not sending us to start fights or have arguments, but He is sending us with a heart to bear witness to Him so that other people might be saved, might come into the light might be rescued, rescued from investing everything into the darkness and never seeing the light. And the darkness might look great. A few years ago, Ruth and I were on holiday in, in Stockholm. We went to a museum because that's the only time I go to a museum on holiday. It's, it's nice to go to a museum. We went to a Nordic Cultural Museum in Stockholm, and they had a special exhibition on light. Who'd have thought it? An exhibition on light. It was fascinating because it was a walkthrough exhibition and it started off it started off at the time where there was only fire and starlight and moonlight. And so you're in a room where you could see the stars and the moon, and I think there was a simulation of a fire. And we were just asked to imagine a world in which that's all the light there was at night. There's daylight, and then there's just what's in the sky or a fire. And then it moved on to the breakthrough revelation, revolution, which was the candle. And you think, candles, you can get those like, you know, bunch of them for buttons in Ikea. Well, they were once a revolution because now you could actually have light at night. And then, of course, it goes on to oil lamps, and then from there it went on to electric light. And I think the last room, there just was no light. And actually now in society, we have to go to designated dark places. I think there's one in Dumfrieshire, if you want to be able to see darkness. Ooh, we have some darkness. There's no darkness in here. You can walk through this place at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning and see exactly where you're going and what you're doing. You will not trip. And yet, for all of the light that abounds in the city center, it's a very dark place. <laughs> it's a very dark place. Walk in the light while you have the light. And so Jesus warns and speaks of the people who would not believe. 
saying that in the end, people will stand or fall depending on what they've done with Jesus. You've read Revelation, you know that at the end of it, what's the book that matters? There's only one book that matters, right? It's the Lamb's book of life. It's whether your name's in Jesus' book or not. It's what you've done with Jesus. It's whether you've recognized that actually the thread that goes through all human history that brings light and life and transformation is Jesus. And if you don't yet know Jesus, then I urge you to open your heart and your mind to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Because all other things that we are chasing and giving our lives to, many of them are passing away. But that which we invest for the kingdom will never pass away. Jesus did not speak on its own, he said, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. His command leads to life. So where is the darkness? Where is the light? What are you pursuing, giving yourselves to? And in the places that he sends you to, will you have the courage to confound the darkness with your testimony, with your challenge, with your willingness to raise your head above the parapet and say, actually, I see it differently. I was doing some training with street pastors yesterday morning, and uh, there was a, a girl there in one of the kind of breakout conversation moments. We were talking about uh, speaking to atheists, and she was talking about this guy that she works alongside who she would say is pretty much an atheist. And he can be, you know, pretty down on God, and why does a good God allow suffering, and there's just so much, you know, bad things in the world, and if he was there, he would stop it and prevent it, and so on. And these are legitimate questions. I refer you to the Solus website. And I said, and, and she said, and he comes to me and he tells me all of this stuff. I said, does he come and tell anybody else? He said, no. So why do you think he comes to you? She said, well, I think it's because he knows I pray and I go to church. <laughs> the atheist comes to the Christian. I've heard that story so many times that people who mock and ridicule and laugh will also be the one who will quietly sidle up to the Christian in times of crisis or when questions arise because actually they want to have the conversation. They want to be proved wrong. They want to be given hope and be shown that there is more than the frustration or the hurt or the emptiness that this world offers. And Jesus has called you by name entrusted you with that, given you a testimony, and sent you in his name and in his power. So if you're brand new to Glasgow, brand new to university, brand new to your halls, well, just believe that he has, if you're a believer, that he has placed you there. And ask him where your mission field is. Ask him to open your eyes to whoever it is he wants to send you to. Ask him for God opportunities to have the conversation. Ask him to give you the words and do the research on Solas or other places if you need to, to find out what those words are or could be. 
Because all Jesus has got right now in Glasgow is you and all the other folks in the other churches round about us to bear witness. Let's pray together. Lord, thank